Welcome to the Therapist Thrival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Lucas Vellini, LMFT. I'm a man. Yes, which is important for this topic in this month because it is November, which is Ellie's Men's Mental Health Month. So we are talking all about men's mental health. We're talking about what it's like to be a man clinician. We're talking about postpartum depression in in men, all of the different things. And And it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) It's an important topic, and I'm excited that we're diving into it because I think that there's there's so much stigma around men's mental health and men seeking care. And so I'm excited to have this conversation. So we brought some men in the room. Um, We have Zach and Matt. Do you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves? Yeah. Uh, My name's Matt Reed. I'm a therapist out of LA St. Paul. I've been there for three years. And I've been a therapist for about nine years. And uh, yeah, my license track is LPCC. And yeah, I'll enjoy the work that I do there. Awesome. Thanks. Zach? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a licensed L- or I'm a LPCC, yeah, licensed professional clinical counselor. I work out of the Minnetonka Clinic, and it's actually coming up. It'll be my my whole first year towards the end of September. Right. Yeah. Oh, awesome! Here at LA. what a milestone! Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you, how long have you been practicing oh, sure. as a therapist? Yeah. So. It'll be year five. Awesome. Yeah. Who are your favorite types of clients or diagnoses or specialties that you guys like to work with? Yeah. So I am have been finding a lot of my success with middle-aged men. They get um, assigned to me pretty, pretty regularly for my caseload. So, I mean, maybe that's why I'm finding the most success with them <laughs> because I'm getting all of them... Uh, tossed my way. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Know if I necessarily have a preferred diagnosis diagnoses to work with. It's any preferred modalities or anything like that. I mean, we were really pushed client centered in in grad school, mm-hmm. so that's I think a lot of where I put a lot of my. Um, if something fails, that's kind of where I fall back on. Um, but a lot of solution focused stuff. Sure. Um yeah. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Well, I would also I would agree that middle-aged men is is a pretty decent size of my caseload right now. Um I would say another demographic that's been pretty popular um uh, to get referred to um are young people, student young men uh, between the ages of like 12 and, and 18 or 19. Mm. Um, and a lot of them are dealing with, you know, like ADHD, for example, and also just kind of like coming of age type stuff. Sure, yeah. And so that's that's a pretty good amount. I'd say it's probably like 40% of those and then 40% of like middle-aged adult men dealing with, you know, stage of life stuff too. Okay, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. So for both of you, when you have middle-aged men coming in to see you, what are some of the stuff that what's some of the stuff they're dealing with, or the things that they're wanting to address in therapy? And they find you; you don't find them. We tend to be well. I'll speak for myself. I tend to be the one that they refer to. Like yeah. the cat team will reach out to is like, you need to talk to this guy or what what not. Because at my clinic, I'm one of very few full-time 
male therapists. Oh, sure. Yeah, just like any other male at any other clinic. Pretty Same. much, yeah. Uh, I'm the only one in You're Minnetonka. One. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's super common, especially for middle-aged men, that if they're going to go to therapy, they're going to see a male therapist. They're going to want to. Yeah. Yeah. Or Why that, is that? Or that's the only condition. That's the only condition under which they'll go to therapy is if it's a male therapist. Let's unpack that. Yeah, but I mean, I think it makes sense. You know, it's like that. <laughs> I don't want to be vulnerable with a woman. Well, it's, it's such an unknown space from the get go. Sure. Uh, and you know, there's so much anxiety that comes along with that. That seeing another male, you know, at least brings some degree of familiarity. Uh, and yeah, I would say it feels. Not, not that a lot of these men say to themselves it feels more safe, you know, but they'll find different ways to say that mm-hmm. without saying it feels more safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I get often in relation to that is, you know, you'll, I think you just get it. Yeah. yeah. Just get yeah. it. Yeah. Usually I'll get interviewed on the first day and they'll well, ask always me. An interview. If they don't see my wedding band, they'll be like, so are you married? I'll say, I am married. Yeah. Do you have any kids? Right. So it's, it's about me you have got that your, shared experience. Where you got your degrees from. I haven't had that one yet. Oh, really? Good. I have Twice. my degree on my wall, so if they want to look at it, I just point to it. I don't have to go into my... <laughs> but the, but it's interesting. It's like an interview. It's like, let me kind mm-hmm. of feel you out. Let right. me see who, like, if you have some credibility because they're looking for someone in a similar life stage or someone who's had similar experiences. They're looking for competence because competence means a lot to men. And they want to know that the man sitting in front of them is competent. I would agree with that. Competence is definitely a big one in addition to understanding mm-hmm. on the other side, right? The, the objective side is I want to not just waste my time here because I already don't necessarily want to be here. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be here, I want to do this right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other side, it's can I let you in yeah. and know that the information I'm giving you isn't going to be either misunderstood or misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, going going down the wrong path, maybe, and having it take a long time to get to where they want to go. Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of men, and especially middle-aged men, who are going to therapy for their first time, I'd be willing to guess that they maybe more times than not haven't experienced the most rich, rewarding fulfilling relationships with women in their life, like in any capacity, but they have a lot of guy friends, you know, and so they know how to be friends with a guy. Um, But, you know, a lot of times what's lacking in their life is how to emotionally connect at deeper levels with women, you know, Mm -hmm. and so maybe, yeah, a man, one, might be able to help get me there um, faster or two, at the very least, if I have one foot in the door of commitment to this whole therapy thing anyway, I'd rather sit around with a dude, you know, than waste my time struggling to connect with another woman in my life because mm-hmm. that's something I'm already dealing with. Well, I wonder too, though, like the perception of being weak and how that kind of could play into it of like, I I feel like I can, I can, I have some common ground. I can have a, I can be more vulnerable with, with like another guy versus like, I don't want the woman in front of me judging me or thinking that I'm like, Weak or or maybe the if it's a male therapist he won't be as like emotion focused I don't know is that yeah, like a sweeping I, generalization I don't well, know could be I mean I, I can't think of any research that specifically but anecdotally it makes sense and adds up 
Like she, um, like that. Ma- it'll be yeah. It'll be therapy will be more masculine mm. if I see a male therapist. Hmm. You know, and then to the other point too, it's like, yeah, men judge themselves. You know, if we're going to therapy, and you know, if it, if it's if it's a male therapist, they're probably not going to judge me for going to therapy because they're a therapist. Yeah, and this is what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially when therapists advertise that they specialize in working with men. You know, that can be an important thing to put up on your bio um, if that's something that you, Mm -hmm. you know, enjoy working with Mm -hmm. um, and you do have competency with it. Well, and we've talked before about how I think you have found a lot of success with couples because sometimes if it's like a heterosexual couple, um, you know, again, stereotype wife is like, I want to go to therapy and husband is like, only if it's a male therapist. We've talked about this before. Yeah. So it's either only if it's a male therapist or they've already burnt through two female couples therapists and mm. the you know man feels like there was a misalignment and he says, all right, if we're going to do this again, whether it's the second or third time, it'll be with a male. Maybe he'll be on my side. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And because that, uh-huh. that's what all couples therapy is, is each partner initially battling to yep. get you to align with them against mm-hmm. the other. Mm-hmm. Which is why couples therapy is so enticing. Oh, I love it. So good. Um, exactly. You know, but then they get with me and, you know, I have them crying by the end of the first session. There you go. Hmm. It's always a good feeling. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so going back to some of the different things that you're seeing men come in for, and I know, Matt, you specialize too in like anger and like you've done anger management groups and stuff in the past. Have you, is that something that you work on with a lot of clients currently too? Absolutely. Um, that is a big one. Uh, There's a lot of kind of relearning and re-education on what anger is um, Mm -hmm. and what it can mean, how it manifests itself, how it affects the body. You know, that takes up a pretty good substantial amount of my work with my clients. And they're very curious, which is possibly one of the greatest attributes of a a successful client is curiosity Mm -hmm. and being open and wanting to learn more. And I've found a lot of success. My, My clients have found a lot of success in just trying to shift that understanding of such a prevalent and such a basic but highly misunderstood human emotion. Yeah. It's that um, the external description of anger. You know, there's this difficulty, I think, for a lot of men to take what they're feeling internally and verbalizing it externally. So then what a lot of people are seeing is that anger, that irritability. They're seeing, you know, substance use. And right. that's when they're like, you know, people are, hey, you know, you let's get you to therapy. Let's get you to therapy. And then kind of twisting that understanding of anger to, hey, this isn't necessarily that external emotion. Let's look at what's going on internally instead. Yeah, and that's always my approach with anger. When anger is an issue... I don't necessarily, like one of the first things I'll say is, it's like, all right, if you think anger is an issue, it's like, we're not going to spend our time trying to help you be less angry. We're going to spend our time just helping you feel more of a range of emotions, you know, because if, if, if you focus on being less angry and managing your anger, it's like that can just lead to more suppression. But if you just kind of let anger exist as it's existing, where it's existing, and you shift their focus to more emotions, especially the primary emotions that exist beneath anger, is once they start attuning to those emotions, it's like anger just kind of becomes far less relevant. 
soon as you hear, I'm scared or I'm, af- <laughs> I'm afraid or mm-hmm. sad. Yeah you, yeah, you hit it. You hit something deep. Yep. Hmm. So what made you two go into therapy and go into like yeah, becoming kind of an LPCC? <laughs> uh, I think it's fun. I, I originally went to college to be an architect. Oh. Are you serious? Typical. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean typical? Yeah, you know, it's like men are architects, engineers, or yeah. business majors. Oh, yeah. sure. Okay. okay. My, mine was more so I like to draw. Oh, okay. I like to do a lot of art. You had to have been good at math then too. Actually, so is that why you so, didn't continue? So yeah, so what happened? I I was going into it. And I'm like, cool. I'm gonna make it to draw a bunch of buildings. I'm gonna do some landscape work, and they were like, hey, and you got it? No, you got to take a bunch of math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, no, oh. no. Nobody that's good at math goes into therapy. No, I'm terrible. Yeah, so I'm terrible at math. Um, <laughs> and then didn't know what I wanted to do, and you know, ask the advice of a lot of close, my, my close support systems. And it's like, you, you're a good listener. You talk to people, Mm. you take in a lot of information and you just genuinely seem like you want to help. And for a little bit, I didn't listen to that. And why not? I, did you like, did you resist that? Um, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily resisted it. I don't. Maybe it was more so of just like I. I was like, I don't. I don't know if or, that's. Or maybe for like me. this. So those qualities you had that other people reflected to you. Sure. Did you identify strongly with those qualities at that time, or did it kind of surprise you that they reflected that back to you? Um, I think. I don't think it was surprising. I didn't know where I could go with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe, and then, mm-hmm. in some just. Gen, general, you know, sociology or mm-hmm. whatever class you get. I got some professors that were, hey, you know, go look into look into therapy. What would that be like for you? And I was, I went and talked to the head of the uh, therapy program, and they ended up actually letting me take some of the ther- grad courses oh, wow. for therapy. That was really cool. And as soon as we started talking about theories and mm-hmm. when to use them. I was like, I'm hooked. <laughs> so, yeah. Did I, did I answer the question? Yeah, you did. Yeah, what okay. about you, Matt? What made you get into this? This is actually really funny. Uh, I'm glad you went first because this makes it even better. <laughs> I, too, wanted to be an architect. Oh. I, I'm not even joking. <laughs> if, yeah, you could talk to anybody this close to me. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, my plan was to be an architect because I also like to draw. Um, yeah, this is weird. I'm just <laughs> not making this up. Hi, Matt. This is what your a, new best friend, yes, Zach. Yes, yes. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. Our souls have met in the past life, I'm you sure. You going to go draw after this. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not going to do math, that's for sure. Um, yeah. uh, I, I did drawing all through you know, my young years and even currently, but I, I hit a point where... I felt like I probably could or should do architecture work or that type of stuff. And then I just, I didn't feel much passion about it. It just kind of made sense, but it didn't feel right. And then I saw, I think it was the summer, summer between junior and senior year of high school, I saw the movie Goodwill Hunting mm-hmm. on, a set, on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And yeah. that one, yeah. that one rocked me pretty good. Sean. Yeah, Sean's like Sean legit, McGuire, legit one of my biggest influences. 
I've I've watched many podcasts just like this of therapists discussing just that oh, movie. Yeah. Man, I, maybe I we do should that do that sometimes. And yeah. that is that is about that is quintessential man therapy as I've ever oh, yeah, seen. That was so portrayed. brilliant. There, there's no better man therapy. Than the only what thing on that there. could come even close would be the movie Ordinary People mm. with a conversation mm -hmm. between Judd Hirsch and Tim Hutton. And Tim Hutton won an Oscar that year yeah. for that film. And it is a scary, realistic example of you know, what a typical family in America can go through. Hmm. Um, but I saw that movie on a Sunday afternoon, fell in love with it, became my favorite movie, still is my favorite movie. And I kind of saw myself in that role of like, I, I want to do that. I want to, whatever that is, I want to mm -hmm. try it. I grew up in a small town, not a lot of resources, not a lot of therapy options. I think the closest therapist was like a 25, 30 minute drive mm -hmm. from where I grew up. And so nobody that I knew went to therapy or at least talked about going to therapy, wasn't sure what it was, watched the movie, became more aware of it, started reading psych textbooks for fun. Hmm. Uh, and then I declared it as a major the following year in college and went to grad school after that. And the rest has just kind of fallen into place. Oh, interesting. Had either of you gone to therapy before you like started school as a therapist or had any experience like going to therapy? When I was, when I was a kid, I went for a little bit. I was probably like twelve or thirteen. Sure, I was just curious. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Just general anxiety, mm -hmm. and it just at that time, I was it wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. You know, that twelve, thirteen age. <laughs> Did you see no, a female okay. or male therapist? She was a female. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Huh. Well, so I mean. We talked a little bit about your specialties. We talked about like what brought you into this. Um, I I really want to kind of unpack more around men's mental health stigma, like the stigma around pursuing therapy and like why why we think that that exists. And so I, I couldn't really think of any other like better people to be in the room to discuss this than male therapist right, which is like so so forward thinking of you Miranda. i know i just i mean i could have had a, a group of women to because honestly speculate, like I, I would say my experience of grad school as a student my experience of academia for eight years as a professor it's like the experience of man is already defined you know it's like that's already written it's already established and it wasn't written by men per se and i'm, I'm speaking to and Jeez, I can't believe I'm doing this. Um, I'm not saying this as like a criticism of this model. I'm just saying it as something that is. But the narrative of men as it's taught in majority of graduate programs is governed by feminism and feminist thinking. Sure. And it exists within the power oppression model. And we know what man's role is in that. And that's kind of where it ends. Well, and I mean, within this field, within this career, like... It is, I mean, there's there's far more female therapists. Oh, it's, than, it's massive. It's it's 85%, 86%, 87%. But when you think about the people who are like creating some of these theories and the people mm -hmm. who are like kind of more at the top, it's, it's going to be a lot of men, right? Yeah. So like how, what's the disconnect there? Well, it's, it's, that comes down to, um, you know, it's like you take the pool of therapists and the first variable you would need to control for is who goes into higher education sure. as a full-time professor. Well, one, it's who gets their doctorate, which is already a very small percentage mm -hmm. of the group of therapists. 
of that small percentage of therapists that have a doctorate, how many of them go into higher education, mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a disparity there already from the get-go because, you know, what we know from big five personality traits and just a lot of uh, research is the traits that correlate with um, success in higher education are more evident in men than in women when you look at the large samples. But I would say the biggest factor is um, once you decide you want to set out for higher education, which is pretty like everyone who's writing these books. They're but all, you're talking about like people who are working in higher education or people well, who go to school for who higher write the books. Okay. So the like, ones that are working in higher yeah, ed. Because right. that's their job. But nowadays it seems like hasn't that flipped where it's like the majority of people who are going to college that are getting advanced degrees are female? Yeah. So like we we've seen um and they do studies on this, like faculty demographics uh across, I know for sure at least within MFT programs. Um and there, it's certainly balancing itself out. Historically, what got us there is once you decide you want to go into higher education, it is incredibly unlikely that you'll get a tenure track position that just happens to be at a university in the state you already live in. Mm -hmm. And so relocation is almost a necessity. Like if you want to go into higher ed, be prepared to relocate to wherever there's a vacant tenure track mm -hmm. position at any university. And then when it comes to disparities in willingness to relocate for a career, sure. significant disparity between yeah. men and women. And so that's why, you know, men historically have gravitated toward higher education and found, you know, um, just a home there. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is balancing itself out. Like it really doesn't look like that much at all anymore. If you control for fully tenured faculty, there's still a disparity f with men, but that's just historic. You know, mm -hmm. that, that's going to age itself out as people retire. So then I guess I'm just thinking through too, we've got the theories, we've got, we, we kind of talked through that a little bit, but like, why do you think the majority of therapists are female then? Oh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a helping profession. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a world of emotional attunement, togetherness. It's, it's like, if you look at the qualities of, of a therapist and, and again, take it back to everything we've learned from big five personality research, it's like those qualities are significantly more evident in women than they are in men. Mm -hmm. The emotional attunement. And, yeah. Or yeah. Just, just wanting to be a helper in mm -hmm. general. Right. You know, and just if you look at, um, and, and that generalizes across, you know, gender disparities and uh, what careers people pursue in general. You mm -hmm. know, like if the lowest paying careers that you can major in at universities generally exist within the helping professions. Right. It's like the helping professions and theology. Mm -hmm. um, if you take theology out of it, which is significantly, you know, disproportionately men, um, depending on what the religious university is, mm -hmm. exclusively men mm -hmm. um, in many situations. All the other lowest paying helping profession jobs are like 85 to 90 percent women. Yeah. Um, you look at the highest paying majors, you know, uh, engineering, you mm -hmm. know, uh, business, uh, software development, uh, IT stuff significant disparity uh, men to women. Mm -hmm. And again, a lot of that just comes down to interests and right. what you actually want to do. Men mm -hmm. are more interested in things in general. Women are more interested in people. Do you think that men avoid going into like helping professions or becoming therapists because of some of that stigma against like emotional attunement or like seeking mental health help or like, what do you think about that? You guys can answer too. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think, and you guys, like, if you think back to, you know, like all the 
dudes you knew growing up or just all the men in your life in general. Um, like all the men who I know who are now therapists, it's like there was just always something about us growing up where there was just more of an organic capacity for empathy. You were more sensitive yeah, kids. Yeah, like I was a, I was a super sensitive <laughs> would you th- kid. Would you say that about yourselves oh, too? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, I would yeah. say so. Um, I think what made it easier for me is my younger brother, Jeff, I was born with multiple disabilities. And so I became a caregiver for him by the age of five. Mm. Um, so like I learned how to change diapers at nine years old. Mm-hmm. And so like that definitely shapes a lot of life experience, shapes a lot of your, um, I guess, just natural proclivities. It yeah. draws that out maybe a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And so that that definitely helps. I'm definitely more on the viewpoint of personality mixed with upbringing and life experiences as being kind of like that, I guess the the foundation or platform for creating a male therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say that there's probably a lot of closet male therapists out there that are just like, oh, I really wish I felt <laughs> comfortable enough pursuing <laughs> yeah. this. I think yeah, those I, I that do. I, don't, I, yeah, I, I haven't noticed it in my own, my own life. Like <laughs> most of the guys who have that proclivity eventually find their way into becoming mm. a therapist. Mm-hmm. A lot of them, like, that's their second career. Mm. After they're done doing something, yeah. another give helping themselves profession. permission to do it. Essentially. You know, and it's like, I think as, as we mature too, it's like by the time our brains are fully developed, like 23, 24, 25, and I think this might happen a little sooner than that. It's like because there is an organic capacity for compassion and sensitivities, it's like I think that also serves as a buffer to really buying into the masculinity systems out there that are just obviously stupid, you know, and meaningless and pointless. You know, like I I can remember from a very young age, like the absurdities of masculinity, like the absurdity of like being the tough guy. Mm-hmm. Like I never wanted to be the tough guy. Hmm. Like that looked terrifying. You know, it's like I was punched in the face enough times to learn that I don't like being punched in the face. And I don't like punching people in the mm-hmm. face. I mean, you have a lot of brothers too, so oh, yeah, helps. Yeah. Um, so do you think that the people who then become clients and seek out therapy are those that are more sensitive to and like maybe they're more open to it? Or do you think that you're seeing that shift? I think I get a little bit of both. Um, I did a little bit of with a lot of my male clients this week, I asked them some mm-hmm. of these questions, you know, what drew you to therapy? What was your resistance? Um, and it's, a, like I said, it's a mix of both. I have some some guys who are in working construction crews mm-hmm. and are some of the most sensitive men that have come into my office. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons they come talk to me is because they say, I can't talk to any of my buddies about this Mm-mm. because there is that, just, no, construction crews, yeah. most vulgar, brutal work <laughs> environment out there. Yeah. And I, it was, yeah, it was last week I talked to him. And mm-hmm. yeah, he just had such a good time. He, we shed a couple tears together. Yeah. You know, it was good. I love it. Yeah. He was uh, looking to connect. He was and, craving connection with another man. And and we absolutely do too. Yeah. We, we have great sessions. I've met with him uh, probably a couple months. Mm-hmm. took him a little bit of time to open up, but I think that's just that oh, yeah. the competence equals mm. safety sure. thing. What about people who 
like clients of either of yours that that would maybe identify as more like masculine, like not the sensitive type, like like a hegemonic what, masculinity, that kind of thing. Like what brings them to therapy, and like divorce. Oh, sure. Okay. Man- mandates. Relation, mandates. Relationship issues. Yeah. Interesting. I had a client who'd never, he didn't know anything about therapy. He's in the medical field, uh, but never understood therapy for what it was. And mm-hmm. the reason why he wanted to do therapy is I want to save my marriage. Mm-hmm. That was, that oh, was the reason good for him. Mm-hmm. And didn't work out. But yeah, that's, that's why he started. And I, I still see him and it's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the things that you guys work on now that his marriage is not working? Did not work. Well, out? we had to get through the surface, right? Like for for this type of individual, like for these clients that tend to come to therapy as a result of a either a tragedy, a burnout, or an ultimatum, mm-hmm. you got to get through that exterior layer, mm-hmm. right? Because they're here to change something that's right in front of their face. When really, what they're needing to do is discover something about themselves that's a mile away. And it takes a long time to get there. And it usually is a result of childhood trauma mixed with poor parental relationships, um, poor self-image and everything mm. in between. I would say it's, lack it's, it's, of it's role the models too. lack of role models. Mm. Yep. Yep. You know, it's the things that are one mile ahead of them and the things that are 500 miles behind them. You know, that, that they, they need to expand their sense of consciousness of how they experience everyday reality because they're so, men can fall into the trap of just becoming so hyper-focused. You know, it's like, whatever it is I'm doing in this moment, that's all I'm doing. And then you're in the next moment, mm. but like not in a mindful kind of way, more of like a, Survival. I'm dissociated mm. from existence kind of way. Um, so let, let's jump back to grad school because I think that is a... Like, I've heard people seek resources, you know, around that phenomenon, but like a lot of men that go into a graduate program in counseling, family therapy, psych, uh, social work, whatever it may be, I don't think they do that anticipating the likelihood that they'll be the only man in majority (laughs) of their classes or one of very, very, very few men in their classes. Mm -hmm. So you show up to the first day and you're kind of like, whoa, how was that for you guys? Um, good. I mean, in my grad program, there was, it was me, um, one other male, shout out to John, um, (laughs) good buddy. And it was 13 women. Mm -hmm. Um, I think historically I've been able to get along with women a lot more than men. I have my guy friends and we can't, we talk and have a good time, but when it comes to that depth of connection, mm-hmm. I have connected more with females throughout my life. So it was jarring. I figured, you know, maybe more than maybe more than two, but it was an okay environment for me to walk into just based on what my entire life looked like. So you're just like, oh, room full of women, great. Yeah. <laughs> this will be easy. Yeah. Pretty much, and yeah. I totally, I can totally relate to that. Just how much easier it was to relationally connect with women growing up, especially in the younger years of development. You know, like it's, it's my son's a middle schooler right now. You know, and the things he's interested in don't necessarily align with relational, you know, attunement sure. and emotional connection and depth. 
Um, hey, you've gotten good at video games. Yeah, yeah, you know, because uh, that's what it is. That's what the interests are. Um, how many people can I annihilate, you know, in this 30-minute <laughs> round? Um, how was it for you? Uh, my grad program had a cohort of 20 to start, and there were five of us. Oh, um, it's an outlier. Yes. One of the men graduated on time. Mm. Twelve of the women graduated on time. So it was uh it was it was interesting that dynamic and you know um wasn't easy but it wasn't it wasn't like terribly difficult I think especially in my first and second year there was a pretty good balance of male to female professors and so it didn't it didn't necessarily feel like we were outnumbered based on the professors that mm-hmm. we had mm-hmm. And there really weren't too many people in my cohort that I was actively like trying to avoid as well. So we all had a very tight bond and it happened very quickly. I think there's something to be said about trauma bonding in grad school where like, oh, we're all going through this Mm -hmm. hellish experience together. Um, This sounds like fun. There's something you you said that struck me. Um, it, It wasn't easy, but it wasn't that terrible. And like I think that that says a lot, you know. Like I think that speaks a lot to like what a common male struggle can be, you know. Where it's like it's not easy, but it's not terrible relative to all the other terrible things that exist out there, hmm. you know. And like and so because of that, it's like well, so I'll just keep it to myself, you know. And it's like and no need for me to speak out about this or talk about it, you know. But that is, you know, in your cohort in particular. That that wasn't twenty five percent men. Um, that's a significant disparity. You know, yes. was it ever addressed? Was it ever talked about out loud? Was it ever identified and recognized that you're the only male in the room? Oh, in my grad program. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> there there was a class um, that we had. One of my professors. It was she kind of went into this discussion about which which clients that us as men might be successful with um, going into the field. And my, um, uh, my buddy, John, she, he's kind of, he's got a presence mm-hmm. about him. One of the most nicest, sensitive guys that I know, but he's just got a, a presence, like succeeds very well with male clients, just because of I know like I a confidence yeah. or like, Hogan? No. <laughs> like is he no his brother <laughs> his aura is just <laughs> just bigger um and my professor was like you know John he he'll succeed more with the the male clients because of his aura whereas Zach you know he presents a little bit softer he's a little bit more was it presented as an aura thing what do you <laughs> or mean was that your words how I see him how I see no, John. Did, did your professor use the word aura when describing <laughs> oh, no. his? Oh, okay. <laughs> no. What did they uh, say? That's a me thing. Uh, oof, that's tough. I, I wouldn't be able to give you an answer on that. What, was it, just more, the was more, it speaking more directly to like his masculinity yeah, and like his physical so. manly yeah. presence? Yeah. Just the his presentation. Yeah. Is that adherence to tradition? Mm. Um, I don't know. That's a, 
It would be a good one to go back in time to look at. He was at wearing it. a Vikings jersey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, always with the always with the backwards hat. Oh sure. You know? Yeah, but there's something to be said about that, especially like if you are just uh, organically and you know notably more sensitive, emotionally attuned man. Like I would, I think there are a lot of things that don't make sense about me. It would be significantly more difficult to make sense of if I was six four, you know, two hundred ten pounds of like jacked up muscle. Like, so, I'd be a weird guy. But going back to your experience, like, how did that make you feel hearing that? I mean, were you like, yeah, that's about right? Or were you like, wait a minute. Sure. You so, just. Yeah, you called me fem. No. You just judged me. Or you um, just like, I don't know. What was your response to that? Internally, I know it's a truth. You know, like I said, growing up, I was just closer to women and I'm in touch, I think, a little, maybe a little bit more with that feminine aspect. So it was internally I understood. <laughs> and then externally I was like, hey, you know, I do man things too, yeah. you know, but yeah. it's okay. It, it makes sense. It made sense. I understood where she was going. Did the professor only do that to you and John? Or did, did mm. okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, huh. they, then they turned huh. to... <laughs> <laughs> the two female students and said, you're going to do really well with other people. Uh, you mean the 18 uh, yeah, female yeah. students? Um, so that's interesting. So it's like, it wasn't acknowledged in a way of like, you're a minority in this group setting. It was acknowledged in a way of like, let's just put you on blast. Okay, It, it could have been. Maybe. But it also, that also kind of strikes me because then you're looking at, you're lo this, this professor is looking at this room of like, up and coming therapists and saying, I don't know if there's a good fit for a lot of men in this room or like masculine men in this room. You know what I mean? Like, was were they saying like, all right, you're going to be real, like masculine men are going to feel safe with John and not necessarily with the rest of you all. I think I'm at least maybe I'm hoping that it, for, for my professor was that's where they'll find success. Mm. Yeah, and like I would have interpreted the opposite where they weren't saying male male clients will feel more comfortable with John. I think it was more of a statement of like, John, you should really only work with other men because other clients that aren't men might not feel safe or comfortable with you. Mm. Which is a ridiculous thing to say based well, off of what it, somebody just looks like. Right, but yeah. what I think the point that I'm trying to make though too is it's like... I mean, when we say these are the types of therapists that we think masculine men will do well with, or like we we think that, I don't know, I think that that kind of adds to some of the stigma around therapy of like, you know, in order for you to be successful as a client, you should really find this type of therapist mm -hmm. because you probably will get uncomfortable with Oh, yeah, that's, that's ridiculous, especially if you reduce the options to gender mm -hmm. and gender alone. Mm -hmm. Like it's easy. I could say, you know, it's like I'm shopping around for a therapist right now. Um, I put out an ad on a therapist referral group, getting a lot of getting a lot of offers. Um, when I first got into therapy, I did have a sense of like, I'd like to see a male, you know, and like I then I saw another male. And then when I was on my third stint, I was like, I would like to see a male, but I caught myself and I was like, why? Mm -hmm. You know, why is that? And I forced myself to see a female therapist and it made a world of difference. And it was less comfortable, you know, like it was a different experience for me, um, but it was the experience I needed. 
I see a female therapist too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My only therapy experience is with a female. Interesting. Was it, I, I, I like that. I appreciate that example because I think that's how most men probably feel like I want to find someone that's going to resonate with me and, and going to kind of, I can come in at ground zero and already understand what's what's going on but is there more you want to unpack on this particular part yeah so like what was so even in well maybe in your cohort might be a little skewed since it was 25 percent men um but i do think it's one of those you know i'm not an apologist i'm not a men's rights activist um but you know it's it's i think in any other like grad programs we're so conscious of uh culture Mm-hmm. you know, and diversity and demographics. And in any other circumstance, if there was that, what's so significant about that disparity of gender? Because, you know, it's like if you control for um, race, it's like there's far, there are plenty of races that have representation that dips far beneath 15%. Um, but that's a much smaller sample. It's like we're taking the entire sample of therapists and it's an 85% to 15% disparity in any other situation other than men being that 15%, it would be an issue that we'd be talking about out loud constantly and doing something about. Well, I think I think that like you and I talk about that example in um, shrinking with like, um, I cannot remember the therapist's name, but... Um, Paul. No, the, the the black woman therapist. Gabby. She's Gabby. Thank you. So good. She's amazing. And th- like, there's that interaction with her client, who's oh, yeah. also a black woman, yeah. and she's like, "You get me." Yes. And so, like, I don't want to discount that either, right? Like, because oh, I and think it's, that and like, we don't need to. That's like we don't need to compete with this stuff. No, but I'm saying, like, even just for men, there might be more comfort in just seeing a male therapist too like oh yeah i don't think it's always a bad thing no i think it's great that they have that option you know and say that's why that's why i would say we do need more male therapists you know and it's it's we should address what the barriers are to more men seeking this profession Mm -hmm. um because it's like it was never difficult like if you're a male therapist and you're trying to fill a caseload advertise to male clients Mm -hmm. and you will fill your caseload you know, because there, there's, there's a shortage, you know, and it's that if that's clearly something 50% of our demographic of consumers of therapy are looking for, um, they can often struggle to find it. And I can only imagine how many men out there are open to therapy. They start looking for male therapists. They can't find one. And so they just never go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back to just like maybe the greater stigma around emotional attunement the greater stigma around men's mental health like i i know that we talked we talk about this a little bit in next week's episode but like i want i want to kind of unpack that a little bit more too yeah just like masculinity in general you know and 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 its impact on mental health well and but but like why, why? yeah <laughs> i mean i i think if you broke your leg, you would still go to the doctor. But oh, like... a, not all men. <laughs> rub, um, rub some dirt on it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like men need to give, men need to evolve. You know, and like societally, men need to evolve because the role that men have always played it for centennials, you know, thousands of years is no longer needed. Like, we don't need men to be warriors anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't need men to be brutal. We don't need to raise men 
in a manner that prepares them to survive war and other like rigorously demanding, life-threatening, high-intensity situations and environments. And we're one generation into that because the book end of that was Vietnam. You know, and like post-Vietnam, no more drafts. You know, it's like there there isn't any more of that. And so what is man's primary role that they can earn self-esteem from going to be now? And I think with like millennial men, we're seeing significant shifts in how millenn millennial men go about fathering, mm -hmm. go about marriage, go about career choices. Mm -hmm. um, That's different than their parents. So different than mm -hmm. their parents, you know, because their parents, that was still the era of, it's like you get one job that mm -hmm. you're good at, you work it for the rest of your life yep. and you don't complain. Mm -hmm. It's like you keep your mouth shut about mm -hmm. it. Um, and it's like that, that was one generation ago. Those were our parents, you know, yeah. who were raised in that generation. Millennials are like, nah, you know, it's like, I, I have passions. I have interests. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't grow up with war embedded into our psyches. Okay, you know? wait, this is a side note. But as of like, as of the time we're recording this, there's this social media trend going around right now um, where like partners will ask their male partners, like how often they think about the Roman oh, Empire. My my partner just asked me that. Do you morning. know what I'm talking about? I don't. I just okay. saw it. Okay, yesterday. so guys, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? My answer to the question this morning was um, only when I think about the future projection of the United States of America. Okay, which you probably think about that a lot, though. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what about like? Every but day. The, the, the fall of the Roman Empire isn't at the forefront of it always, but right. it's, it's, it's the undertone sure. you know, with all of it because that's where we're headed. Okay, so what about you guys? Mine's only when I use the cliche with clients about Rome wasn't built in a day. Okay, yeah. okay. What about you, Matt? Um, mine's usually after I watch the movies, Ben-Hur or The Gladiator. Oh, sure. Right. So, yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I saw a TikTok this morning that was like... Um, you know, a, a woman was asking her partner how often he thinks about it. And he was like, oh, probably, I mean, a lot. And she was like, wait a minute, like how often? He goes, well, sometimes when I'm like hyping up, hyping myself up or like going into something, I think about like, you know, the gladiators that were hyping themselves up going into the Coliseum. And, and it was such a funny TikTok because I was like, this is real. I mean, this is something well, that. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because the question you were just <laughs> asking I don't know if I would have thought to bring this into it, but I think one of the most critical aspects of understanding men and working with men clinically is the notion of heroism hmm. and the role that heroism plays within the male identity mm -hmm. and the significance and power of the social conditioning that ingrains this, this desire and pursuit and sense of heroism. And a lot of, you know, my favorite writer of all time, is Ernest Becker. He's written the most important books anybody can read if you're seeking to understand human nature at the absolute core. It's like, read Ernest Becker. And he attributes um, all of men's failed mental health as a direct correlate of failed heroism. Mm -hmm. You know, that this man has failed to achieve the heroism in his life that he's been pursuing, and that's why he's crippled with despair. And so when I say men need to evolve, you know, a better way to say that would be men need to diversify how they go about pursuing and achieving heroism. 
because we that that could still very well be the goal. Mm-hmm. Like the pursuit of heroism is not a bad thing in and of itself, but how men always used to achieve heroism is no longer valued in society. It's no longer a resource in society to even go out and do that. And if anything, you know, um, rightfully with the shift of the civil rights era and all the things that women were able to achieve and accomplish, that created an incredible amount of competition, mm. you know, to achieve heroism in the workplace. Um, and the workplace was the next best thing to war, you know, that men had mm. when they weren't at war. And so we just, we we need to evolve. And again, I think that's something that millennial men are doing is they're finding ways to achieve their heroism in their families, in their fathering, mm. you know, and in, in more of their immediate systems as opposed to pursuing like this glory, Hmm. You know, and so it's like when men go about pursuing heroism, it's like set, set a, an attainable standard or mark. Like we're not going to be, gla- we're, we're never going to have our gladiator moment, even though they'll often just randomly shout out, are you not entertained? <laughs> you know, I, I, I say that to uh, my kids every day. <laughs> yeah, I think a gladiator six pack is just like well out of my range from now on. Yeah. <laughs> No gladiator for me. 32. Yeah, I'm done for. (laughs) Oh, thanks. So, I mean, like, how do you think that this, we talked about, like, the heroism and, and, like, how that can be kind of why people are seeking out mental health help or you're, like, even seeing the shift in meaning. Yeah, shift in meaning. So what, like, what should we take from this conversation? How do, how do we move forward? I mean, it's, you know, some of the things I like saying to men in therapy is like, I do encourage them. It's like, I would work with a lot of high achieving men, you know, like men who have just accomplished everything financially there was to accomplish. And then they find themselves in the place of middle age where the only option is more, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's, they're tired. Um, And, you know, that's like the, the appeal just isn't as strong as it was before you know, to just keep going at that rigor. And so I like to talk with them about, well, first and foremost, it's like everything we do in this room together, it's like none of it is about diminishing your masculinity. It's like, that's not my goal. And that shouldn't be anybody's goal because that would be a silly goal. You know, it's just about uh, expanding, you know, what masculinity means to you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, diversifying, you know, the your resources for self-esteem when it comes to enacting your masculinity identifying with the positive qualities of masculinity and then finding outlets in which they can invest in actualizing and enacting those qualities. Um, But, you know, one of the things I'll reflect to him is it's like the amount of energy and focus you put into your professional career success is, is exceptional. You know, like it's extraordinary. What would it look like if you put that same degree of intention and, energy and focus into your marriage, you know, into being a dad, into your relationships. You know, it's like find a hobby because a lot of men don't have hobbies. And when men, when men, especially high achieving men don't have any hobbies and they haven't invested in their relationships, that's what sets them up to be absolutely paralyzed and crippled by retirement, mm-hmm. you know, and, and has, that's why the second most common year of life that men die is the year they retire. That is a stunning statistic. I think that's one of the most powerful statistics I've ever read because it says so much about the condition of men in this country. And like things are getting better, 
in many ways, but also when you look at the younger generations of men, uh, it's alarming, you know, dropping out of school at much higher rates, you know, not, we're not seeing the same degree of, um, uh, ambition. We're seeing significant increases in depression, you know, and impaired mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I do think that's a product of men getting lost in what is my role now as, mm -hmm. as, I exist in this world, you know, and so we just need to do a better job giving men permission to diversify. Um, where's my value? Yeah, where's mm. my value? That's what heroism is. You know, it's all about mm -hmm. my perceived sense of value to the world that I'm living in. You know, it's like when I when I'd come back with the, uh, you know, with the buffalo over my shoulder that I just killed. That's going to feed the village. You know, for weeks, that celebrated. You know, it's like you were the hero of of that group of people you know and it's like now it's much less satisfying to come back with you know two bags from aldi mm -hmm. um and so again it's like we just we we need to talk with men about being men what it means to be men and yeah i mean give permission to start investing in the things that matter and a great place to start is your family i think one of the most freeing things a lot of my clients uh here is when kind of i talk to them about the more I guess, biologically hardwired aspects of masculinity, um, aggression, anger, but also expectations, right? When I talk to them about how we have been, over time, kind of conditioned to respond to things in certain ways based on our biology, and coming at it from a you know, scientific and data-driven perspective, allows them the freedom to not blame themselves for certain things, right? I said to a guy not long ago, I was like, so the panic that you felt in this public speaking engagement, it was pretty intense, right? He said, oh, it was the worst I'd felt like in a long time. I said, well, that's essentially the equivalent of getting chased by a saber-toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. But guess what? There are no more saber-toothed tigers, at least not that I'm aware of. And that response you had was ingrained in your DNA for thousands of years and there's nothing that you can wish away about that you need to become aware of it and less judgmental of yourself for it it's not a product of your decisions a lot of it is genuinely your biology mm -hmm. and your dna and so the, the better you can be at recognizing what something really is versus what you think or feel that it is mm -hmm. that that can be beneficial too and I like the point that you made about like the retirement aspect of, of of what men experience because so much of their own judgment externally and internally is what can I do? I cannot count. I don't have enough fingers and toes to count how many times I've had male clients ask me, "What are we doing today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what sure. can I do this week yeah. before next?" How long, week? how long is this going to take? How long is it? That's another one, which is yeah. again that time mm -hmm. is connected to yeah. the doing, right? Mm. And they want to know, they want to stick to their old model and get a positive result. And I was like, time out. We got we to work on the model first. We got to work on the paradigm that you're coming into this with, hmm. because I think that might be causing you at least some residual problems. And so allowing, allowing men the freedom to be and feel rather than just do exclusively yeah. Yeah. That is yeah. that is a huge part. And when I have the man in the room who is very eager for direction, you know, it's like, give me some KPIs. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the only the only task I like when they really want it, I'll be like, okay, I got one for you. Um, and I'll be like, you know, find what, what's your favorite hotel in the area? You know, they'll name one. I'll be like, book yourself a room there this weekend. Um, and when you park in the parking lot, uh, leave your cell phone, you know, all your devices, your computer in the car, go into that room and sit quietly in there by yourself for 24 hours. And then they never ask me for a task again. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't, that terrifies them. Like the notion of that will cripple them. You know, and then I'm I'll just being I'll just, alone with their the, thoughts. The, the notion of a man sitting down and doing nothing in a room by himself, it can be absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. And so they don't need to go do that. But when they experience that terror in that moment, I'll let them sit with it long enough until I reflect it back to them and then help them understand why that's a problem, that that terrifies them. And then they become, then they start to feel compelled to conquer it. I like the idea of like presenting something as a challenge because I think yeah. it still taps into a strength and something that's not necessarily going to just go away, but it does it in a way that helps to facilitate positive change, right? Yeah. If, if you're competitive, that's also likely not just going to go away. Let's and it use doesn't it. need to, yeah. Let's use yeah. it. Let's, let's find some utility hmm. for this competitiveness. Not that you're constantly trying to meet expectations of your caregivers in the past or, or some unrealistic expectation of yourself, but like be better tomorrow than you were today. Be better today than you were yesterday. Can you use that competitiveness to want to improve yourself and learn and grow and not just for superficial fantasy football gains. Yeah. And I do fantasy football, so I'm not just knocking fantasy football. But you probably don't get all your self-esteem from it. I would hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope not. But a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Sure. That a lot of those points speak a lot about, you were talking about the saber-toothed tiger. I use a, a very similar example with a lot of my men, and I talk about, you know, we don't have the same dangers as we we did when we were living in caves. It's Right. Public speaking, it's, am I going to have enough money to pay my bills for mm -hmm. my family's survival this month? Am I going to be remembered? Am I going to be valued? The, the notion of survivability and what it, you know. Security. Yeah, it's, they're triggered by different things mm -hmm. now. Yeah, and it's not about literal immortality anymore, which was when we literally needed to survive mm -hmm. every day. It's about yep. symbolic immortality yep. of how will our legacy be remembered. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we put all of our eggs into the basket of our career, you know, that's why we die because we have nothing left to invest our legacy into. After retirement? After retirement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like my job's done. Mm -hmm. And when you have no more sense of meaning or purpose in life, that's one of the strongest correlates of death and mortality. Mm -hmm. Um Wow. And I would, you know, I'd, one of my favorite things to do with men um, is that when they, when they cry for the first time in my office, it's like once they clean themselves up, I like lean in and I'll look at them and I'll go, all right, well, let's go head across the street and get into a bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like they'll mm -hmm. laugh, they'll get some relief, mm -hmm. but like what I'm communicating to them in that moment is it's like <laughs> you still get to be a man. So I I really appreciate kind of the way that this conversation has evolved and even just the conversation around like values and identity and heroism. When you are working with male clients, I guess one of the things that I'm interested in and, and what I think some of our listeners would be interested in is 
how do you break down some of those barriers and like like model emotional attunement or or get them to start thinking about their feelings if they're not if they haven't had that modeled to them in the past or they're not people who are really like that comes naturally for them and I think that's one of the most important roles that a male therapist can play is to model that, is to be that first experience of what a more complete, rounded man looks like and can be. And so that's why, like with me, when I'm joining with a man who I sense is like resisting therapy, mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable and difficult for him to be here. I'm going to join with him with all of my masculine parts, like all four of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be masculine. You know, I'm going to talk about things that are comfortable with him. I'm going to let him know that, like, I can live there with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there there are things about being a man that I get, that I know that you get, um, and we can make space for that here. Like, it's okay for you to be a man in that space. Mm -hmm. To talk about fantasy football. Yeah, talk about yeah, whatever it is that <laughs> they're interested in. That's true, yeah. You know, or, um, you know, mergers and acquisitions, you know, or whatever deals they're closing yeah. or the pressures that they experience. One of my friends is, one of my guy friends, he sees a male therapist and he talks about like this one specific video game all the time with his therapist. And like, they have bonded so much over this video oh, yeah. game. Yeah. And it's like, once, once you establish rapport and trust at that level, it's like you can start to show them the different aspects of yourself, mm -hmm. you know, and when you start to show them your other parts and then, you You're know, it's showing like, layers. Yeah. It's like yeah. you give them a glimpse of some emotion and sensitivity. It's like maybe after that first glimpse, you go right back to masculinity, mm -hmm. you know, because what you want to model and demonstrate to them is that these things can not only coexist, but they ultimately will strengthen each other. Like they're not at odds with each other. It's like you just need to create space for them to it exists with one another well, in more that, of an interdependent fashion. I imagine that would give them a lot of comfort because people like I would I would imagine that their fears going into therapy is that you have like a rain stick or something and you're like, we're gonna pass this back and forth and talk about like how we didn't feel uh, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Or that like, you're gonna go right into emotions yeah. or right into their mom or dad. Yes, that's what I was gonna <laughs> say. Yeah. And so I think that like finding some some things to connect with and yeah. and showing multiple facets is yeah. probably important. And I would also say too, it's like don't be very, very careful about when you get into your male client's mother, um, but be absolutely intentional to always get into your male client's father. You know, and when you ask them about their dad, it's one, it'll probably surprise them um, to some capacity. And to, you're going to get so much more rich information out of that than you are going to get out of the question of, tell me about your mom. So maybe that would be a good place to start or not necessarily. I mean, I've done, I've certainly done that in, in the first session. I mean, I know that with most of your clients, you spend like the first month working with them just on a genogram. Well, that's when I work with couples in like <laughs> a marath yeah, marathon-based setting. Sure. Um, but yeah, I do love me. A thorough genogram. What about if if you're a female or like non-male identifying therapist working with men? Like I think women have masculine parts just like men have feminine parts, you know, and it's it's those can be embodied in the exact same ways. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not as easy, you know, like it's it's 
And like when you mentioned that, when I am joining with a female client, I join with her based through my feminine parts sure. first. And then I start to introduce my more masculine parts so she mm. can experience that both can coexist. Yeah. I actually was thinking of the answer to the previous question. Yeah. And now I have forgotten what that question was. <laughs> I think it had to do with um, like, how do you get your male clients Kind of, to open up emotionally. Yeah. yeah. And I want to speak with that just mm -hmm. real quickly. Of course, yeah. Um, I think often men show up to therapy because they know therapy can work. I think a lot of them resist it because they might not believe that it's for them. Like, yeah, it might work, but mm -hmm. it might not, probably not going to work for me. Hmm. So what I try to do, which all my grad school teachers are going to hate that I'm saying this, but I, I try to use as often as I can appropriate self-disclosures of situations that are adjacent. And I mm -hmm. make sure up front that I say, I am not comparing what I experienced or someone that I know experienced as a one-to-one -one comparison. But I can tell you that this can work and has worked for others. And so just that idea of hope of like, okay, maybe, maybe there is hope for me. Maybe there's a chance that I could get something out of this therapy experience. That can be very eye-opening uh, because I, I think they like to... Most most men that I see in therapy like to think that they are the exception to the rule. That they, you know, yeah, it might work for others, but it's not going to work for me. Uh, my, I'm too complicated, or it's just I don't, I don't, I don't have the capacity for it mm -hmm. or personality for it. And then they discover over time, like, okay, um, maybe maybe I'm not so complex after all. Maybe there's a lot of commonalities amongst a broader scope of people that I just kind of didn't see before because I was too close to something. Did all of your professors unanimously impose upon you that you are to never self-disclose? <laughs> I think they wanted to, they created like this. I, I think a lot of them wanted to Boogie make man. sure they we weren't constantly talking about ourselves mm -hmm. and they figured that we would self-correct if they were to say, all right, zero self-disclosures. And then we get into our practices and we'll just be like, oh, maybe just a couple. <laughs> and, re and realistically, like, they, they're also in agreement of like, you can do a couple, but we're not going to tell you to do a couple because then you'll do, you know, 10 or 15. More. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. I think there's this, I have this theory about the speed limit. I really believe that the people that create speed limits, whoever they are, really don't mind if we go five or 10 above the speed limit. Hey, I, so they set it low, knowing not, that we're going to go above it. This is not <laughs> advice. This is not legal advice. Don't just take this with a grain of salt. But I was close friends with my like city's chief of police's daughter. And he once told me, five, you're fine, nine, you're mine. And so, Yeah, yeah I don't like go. nine. I usually set the cruise control at eight miles over. <laughs> but anyways, no, I think we need to have a whole episode just about self-disclosure at some point, too, yeah, because yeah, I think that's, that's a, a big, big question. Um, and sometimes with men, too, you made me think of this. Uh, if they're really resistant, just trick them into thinking you're an executive coach for the first okay. however many sessions. Hmm. Give them some of that. They love that stuff. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm but curious. coaches give advice. Wendy from Billions is what I mean. Oh, I haven't like, seen Billions. Like help them perform better at the things that they are eager to perform better at. You know, it's like, and, and take on more of like a coaching role and position. And then just as you trick them into being an executive coach, you slowly trick them into feeling things. I rarely rebut against a client's initial reason for coming to therapy 
because that's what got them there. Oh, don't yeah. don't lose yeah. that. Don't don't like oh great. okay you want to save your marriage like I would never <laughs> say something nothing like that, saving that one, shit that sounds really bad <laughs> right but two is like okay don't get in the way of their process yes. in starting therapy especially if it's for the first time mm. you know like use it try to like draw them in on that get their buy in they'll respect you for it and they will actually hopefully ideally work on that stuff and then once you get to that certain point then pff, the rest of it all you get to do is just keep them on keep them on the track as well, best you can and how often do clients come in saying i need to work on my marriage and the issue is actually them like they need to work on themselves in yeah. order to work on their marriage. <laughs> that's, that's the same thing of our group. well that's what i'm saying though it's like but but it's but it's different when you're coming in and you're saying there's something wrong with my marriage. You're like pushing it outside of yourself, and then like and it's giving me something to do. Yes, yeah, it's like giving me a goal, and then when you're actually breaking down your treatment plan into you know your smart goals, and you're thinking about like okay, how do we save your marriage? Then you're 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 able to turn inward a little bit more. I would say I like the notion of I'm here to save my marriage, but what I don't like, which I would say happens more often, is I'm here because I can't stand my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> or I can't stand how my wife is treating yeah. me. Yeah. My wife making the me worse. Right. Yeah. She wants to talk. <laughs> Terrible. Like weekly. So that's rough. Any other what what do you feel like we're missing from this conversation? Mustaches. Do you think that you'll have more credibility? We actually talked about I can't I can't believe we forgot to do this, but we talked about how we're like, oh, we're talking about men's mental health stigma this week. Let's make all of our guests shave shave their beards oh, into yeah, mustaches. It's September right now. We talked about that. But I I haven't shaved my beard since like my first year of my undergrad. Yeah. But for anyone out there, I would have definitely done that uh, we'll, we'll do it in november yeah. and maybe I'll update the thumbnail next time uh, oh absolutely <laughs> yeah um, uh, but i think i am doing a mustache this november and um i am already prepping my children for it because they have never seen my chin yeah they don't even know i have a butt chin nobody does but it, i do it's under there and now we all do yeah. now everyone knows yeah i don't shave i have all my worst memories and secrets tattooed on my chin so i always oh, have yeah. i keep that there to cover it up so no one else can <laughs> and see I, it. I don't not shave for purposes of masculinity i do it for purposes of efficiency and getting prepped in the morning to mm -hmm. get out the door <laughs> this was great thank you barker for hosting this and having us and yeah. creating a platform um for us to get into this issue and you know i i feel seen i just feel like we we have barely 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 scratched yeah. the surface of yeah. this and so we'll just need to continue this conversation and um and really dive in into dive in deeper around kind of how we can be eliminating some of the stigma and making it more normal for for everyone to be seeking care and, ex and accessing care instead of just kind of the stereotypes that are out there Cool. Thank you guys so much for joining. Yeah, yeah of course. It was fun. Me. All right. Bar fight. <laughs> bar fight. <laughs> yeah. Why? <you're> <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs>